Uh, Lord God, in many ways we come to you with heavy hearts. God, either we ourselves are experiencing troubles and pain, God, from what's going on in our world or what's going on in our state with these fires. Or God, we know of people who have been displaced, people who have lost homes or potentially even loved ones. God, we pray that this will be a season in which we can find our comfort in you, uh, that we can find our comfort in one another. Lord God, we pray for the many men and women who are on the front lines right now within our state and within California, uh, trying to fight back these fires, Lord, to protect um, the livelihood of hundreds of thousands of people. Lord God, we pray your protection. God, we pray for these firefighters, um, for police, Lord, for first responders, um, that you give them the strength and the endurance to keep going. Even in the midst of moments where it feels just depressing and, and depleting, God, may you strengthen them. Lord God, I pray for our new fire marshal, Mariana Ruiz Temple, Lord, as she's just stepped into that role. God, we pray for her and we pray for her team as they try to navigate fires that are out of control throughout our state. And God, we pray for the hundreds of thousands of people that are displaced. I believe a recent figure I saw was over 500,000 people have been evacuated, leaving everything that they know in many ways, Lord, to go to stay with friends, to stay with family. But for many, Lord, it's peace going and staying um, just in towns that they don't know anything, at fairgrounds, Lord. I'm completely depleted. Lord God, we pray that in the midst of the season, we can turn to you for hope. Lord, we pray that we as the church will truly be the church, to be your hands and feet in a time of need. God, it's so encouraging to see through Facebook and through social media and even through the news, Lord, seeing so many people rallying together in this time to love and to encourage one another, provide the basic necessities for life, the things that give a little bit of comfort in the midst of being stuck at a fairground, living in a tent. God, I praise you just for even seeing yesterday hundreds of farmers bringing in hay and the essentials like that to be able to provide for farmers and for their cattle, for their needs, Lord, because that's their livelihood. God, we rejoice that for the most part lives have been saved and out of harm's way. Yet we recognize, Lord, that for many people, uh, their very livelihood has been taken away from them, God. And, and we recognize that it'll be a lot of time to rebuild. And so, Lord, in the midst of this season, again, may we be present. Give us a heart for these people, Lord. May we pray for them often. And may we go beyond prayer to actually see where our needs and how may we meet it. Lord God, may we be a gospel presence in this city and in this state. May this be a season in which people turn to you. Lord, the gospel is for those that are heartbroken, those that are needy, those that are calling out. And God, as we will even see in the psalm today, those that call out to you in fear and truth, Lord, you save them. And so God, may we see people saved in this season. Because how devastating it is, Lord, that Buildings are lost and forests are ruined, Lord. The soul is way more important than buildings and forests. And so may this be a season in which we see souls turn to you in adoration and praise. 
presence of God as we step into this psalm today, a psalm of praise. May you open our eyes to your scripture and open your scripture to us. In your name, amen. Uh, today we, we conclude our Summer in the Psalms series with Psalm 145. And in many ways we can think of this series and really the psalm book as a whole uh, as, as taking us on a journey. You see, we've experienced the peaks and valleys. We, we've experienced peaks as we've seen the goodness of God on display. As we've seen Jesus Christ truly declared as the great and better king. We've seen the faithfulness of God in the mundane and the magnificent. And yet we've also experienced valleys. We've walked through the valley of the shadows of death. And we've walked with the psalmist as he laments and cries out to God, How long, Lord? Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? We have seen God. We've seen a God who is bigger than our fears and doubts. We've seen a God who can take us at our lowest of lows and our highest of highs. And as we see the book of Psalms take us on a journey, I believe in many ways it points us to reflect on our own journey. The reality is we are pilgrims and sojourners longing for home. We're longing to find rest, and yet as Christians, we recognize that that rest truly won't come until we lay our heads down for our final rest to awaken in paradise with our Lord and Savior. See, like the Psalms, our lives are full of valleys and peaks. Our lives are full of those mountaintop experiences where it feels like we can just reach out and touch God. And then there are moments where we want to curse and cry out, as the psalmist does, how long, Lord? Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And yet, oftentimes, as our journey progresses, and as we look back on the road traveled, more often than not, meaning, understanding, clarity, starts to come into focus. Again, the blurring and full confusion starts to gain clarity. As the saying goes, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yet we also often look to, to other travelers that are farther ahead than us and asking them for understanding, clarity, direction, what is next. You've traveled this road before. What is it like? I mean, think of the many times you've asked your parents or the elders in your life questions like, what, what, is, what is college like? Or post-college, what does it look like to actually be into the real world? What does it look like to get married? How do you know that this person is the person for you? How do you know when you're ready to have kids? Or when you have kids, how the heck do you deal with kids? It's a continuing cycle that we're always asking those that have traveled ahead. So as we journey through life, we are constantly striving to make sense of ourselves, make sense of our world, and make sense of our God. And we work through the messiness of life and invite those fellow travelers along the journey. 
And I believe that in the midst of this season, in the midst of looking back, in the midst of looking forward to those who have already walked, we get to see a picture of God that is true and accurate. A picture of a consistent God in the midst of inconsistency. A picture of an unchanging God in the midst of an ever-changing world. A faithful God in the midst of a faithless generation. The longer time has elapsed, the more oriented we are to this world and what this life is. The more oriented we are to God, who he is, and what he is like. You see, we begin to see how things really are. And so reflecting on Psalm 145, the way one commentator states, he says, Psalm 145 may be regarded as not very interesting collections of cliches. Meaning that as a reader, we simply see this as this naive, unrealistic view of the world. Yet in reality, as we've walked through the Psalms, as we've seen David's life play out on the pages of Scripture, we see that David writes Psalm 145 not from a place of ignorance or inexperience. Rather, it's through his experiences that he's able to write these words, words of praise. You see, in many ways, David is inviting us into this journey called life and reflecting on what he knows to be true. As theologian Michael Wilcox, who wrote on the Psalms, he said, he, being David, has long since been oriented, reoriented, and has discovered on the far side of trial and suffering and mystification that in the end of this, this is how things are. So we come to the psalm sitting under the tutelage of King David. The man after God's own heart as he reflects on his life and as he reflects on who his God is. Psalm 145 is the last psalm of David. And I believe it is at the very end of, of the book of Psalms for a reason. Again, to see David's journey and where he concludes. <clears throat> and it's, it's actually titled A Song of Praise. Which might be interesting to note that this is the only psalm in all 150 psalms that is titled a psalm or a song of praise. Again, many psalms tell us to praise the Lord, but this specifically calls itself a song of praise. Structurally, the psalm is an acrostic, which again, since we're reading in English and not Hebrew, it's not going to be evident to you. But an acrostic simply is each stanza is starting with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. I love the way one person phrases it as, think of the psalm as an alphabet of praise. Walking through the alphabet and praising the Lord letter after letter. On the front end, I also want to draw our attention to verse 13. Specifically the second half. I would assume all of your Bibles, if not most, probably have those words italicized or in brackets. This is because in the standard version of the Hebrew Bible, uh, this verse was missing. But that being said, documents that were found at the Quimran, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls, and really some of the oldest translations we have, like the Septuagint, they have verse 13 present. And what's even more significant is that within this acrostic style, verse 13b is what contains the none or the in within the acrostic. 
So by including 13b, it actually completes this psalm. And so it's bracketed to draw your attention, it's italicized to draw your attention. Yet as we go through this text today, we're very much including it in the scriptures as the word of God, as we reflect on who God is. Again, this psalm is meditative as we reflect and rejoice in who God is. So may we come to today's text with the hearts of worship as David recounts why God is worthy of worship and praise. And the main thrust, the main heart behind this is really where we begin and conclude this psalm. May we walk away remembering that forever and ever praise the Lord. For our God is great, our God is good, our God is glorious, and our God is the giver. But even for Jesus to keep a simple prayer, everybody. And we'll see in these first three sections, really through the first half of 13, that David's got this pattern of he starts with praise. And it kind of concludes with the reason for praise. And then once we hit kind of the middle, he then transitions. And it's all these reasons for praise followed with this last punch to praise the Lord. So from beginning to end, from first to last, in modern terms, from A to Z, praise the Lord. Beginning in verses 1 through 3. To praise the Lord for our God is great. We're seeing that David's starting with individual praise. This is David praising the Lord, and he says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David begins, individual praise to his God and King. We have the King of Israel, the highest man in all the land, recognizing that there is somebody higher than him. Somebody that is more worthy of praise and adoration. The king of all kings. It is God, the true one that reigns. And he focuses on the name of the Lord. Referring to his nature as well as his reputation. Everything that the Lord is fits within that name and he is worthy of praise. And he reiterates that this is a praise that isn't a once in a lifetime situation. But this is every day, forever, and ever. In a sense, on your daily to-do list, praise the Lord is number one. Daily and enthusiastically forever, praise the Lord. But what is the reason for this praise? Verse three, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. The greatness of God is what compels David to praise or to extol the Lord. Again, in one verse, three different times. Great, greatly, greatness. Emphasizing who God is. What David's ultimately saying is our great thoughts of the Lord are what fuels our praise of the Lord. A view of God is tied to our praise. That's ultimately why A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, in his first chapter, he says... What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For a great view of God leads to a great view of praise. Where a weak view of God leads to a weak view of praise. 
This low view leads to a low view of sin, leads to a feeble motivation to act according to the way God calls us to, a weak motivation to actually praise, to actually trust. Yet what does it mean that our Lord is great? That this greatness is unsearchable? Or you might even ask the question, well, doesn't it get tiring to exalt the Lord every single day? Do we have enough? Or do I just feel like it's repetition? David's answer is an emphatic no. You will never run dry because the greatness of God is unsearchable. And that's not the sense that you will never find his greatness. But rather you can search the rest of your life and you'll never find the totality of it. In a sense, it's like an excavation site where you're digging and digging and digging, and you might find this pot, you might find this vessel, but the reality is there's a whole kingdom. And you're realistically never going to reach that whole kingdom by the end of your life, but you don't stop searching. And every time you see that new thing, that new treasure, you rejoice, you're stoked, you're excited. And it leads you to keep going farther and farther and farther. You can never come close to fully capturing the glory of God. I mean, think about it. You can start today and start counting up. One, two, three, four, five. And for the rest of your life, be counting up and never come to the largest number. Or you could head into space to explore the universe and all that there is. And and you could go your whole life and really see but a microcosm of it. Recent studies say that only 4% of what our eyes see, or I guess what our eyes see is only 4% of the universe. And we recognize that our eyes see a lot. You see, as we spend our time looking to God, looking at God, his character, we recognize the magnitude of it. We can spend the rest of our life meditating, contemplating, and writing books on just one characteristic of God. Just one. And you'll never write enough. You'll never have enough pages. Because there's always more to who And for the rest of our days, we can praise our great God. For every day, we are given new reasons to praise. His scripture says his mercies are new each morning. And so ultimately, we see David pointing to our theology leads to our doxology. If our theology, if, if our studying of God doesn't lead to doxology, the praise of God, then really he's saying, what's the point What's the point of just simply knowing things about God, but not actually worshiping God? We see in the the Gospels that the demons even knew who Jesus was. They knew the things of God, yet did not care to praise him as Lord and Savior. Our understanding of God should lead to our praise of God. For again, we recognize the right response to the glory of God, the grace of God, the justice of God, the love of God, the mercies of God, the Trinitarian God is praise, is adoration, is thankfulness. So the hope is that the more we gain knowledge of who God is, the more it leads us to be on our knees praising him. And we become knowledgeable of him through his word. We are blessed with thousands of pages of God revealing himself to us. So who is God? Look to his word. What is he like? Look to his word. What is he calling his believers and his followers to? Look to his word. 
Scripture is a never-ending treasure trove. Are we opening it and diving in? You see, our praise of our great God ought to overflow from our lives to those around us. Ultimately, the greatness of God is so great, so unsearchable, that it cannot be contained in just one generation. But rather, it overflows from generation to generation to generation. And we see David transition from his personal praise in 1 through 3 to really this corporate praise in this next section, 4 through 9. See, as David rejoices, he's saying, not only is our God great, but just as importantly, our great God is also good. Verses 4 through 7. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Oh, the glorious splendor of your majesty and your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. You see the beauty of this section? This isn't just simply one part of the congregation singing to another. It's not the men singing one part and the women echoing in response. No, this is David saying he's singing to one generation, and this generation is singing back to him. The beauty rested in thousands of years later, generation after generation, millions of people upon millions of people. We are participants in this song. We are participants in a generation singing to a generation above us and a generation below us. We are living out the words of this psalm, and how amazing and beautiful is that? Because we have been blessed by a generation ahead of us proclaiming who God is. And we've been led on a journey through older saints, and now we're given the opportunity to do the same. To help the next generation journey on and understand who God is, what he is like. And David says, what's the call? We are to commend his works, his mighty acts, his wondrous works, his awesome deeds. So for David, what, what are those wondrous works, those awesome deeds that he realistically was sharing with the generations before and after? When realistically, David would automatically go to this redemptive act of the story of Exodus. The ten plagues in Egypt that delivered his people, Israel, out of bondage. The miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. The Lord guiding his people in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. The Lord miraculously giving food from heaven called manna. Him taking bitter water and making it sweet. Him taking a rock and producing water out of it guiding his people into the promised land. The miraculous deed is is the covenantal God being in relationship and faithful to his people, a people Israel who moped and complained and time after time just said, hey, take us back to Egypt. Yet God said, you are my people. I will redeem you and I will continue to redeem you. David emphasizes the redemptive thrust of who God is. And it's this redemptive thrust that has made God famous throughout the land. The God of Israel is a God to be known, a God to be feared, a God to be revered. God is kind and generous in taking action. And God is righteous, 
as his concern is to make matters right. Generation to generation, praise the Lord. And why? Because verse 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Again, verse 8 flows out of Exodus 34, where God in all his glory walks in front of Moses. And Moses just simply gets to see the backside. And it's in this that God makes this self-revelation and proclamation of who he is. One of the most quoted statements in the Old Testament and in the Psalms as well. The self-revelation that he is gracious. That he is merciful. That he is slow to anger, which in Hebrew literally means he is long of nostrils. Try to throw that one into uh, everyday language. But really, we can see it's, it's the opposite of this idea of a raging bull who's getting his foot all ready, his nostrils are flaring, ready to charge that red flag. It's really the opposite. It's God that is long-suffering, is patient. He's willing to put up with a lot. And as we look at our lives, we recognize that he puts up with a lot and then some more. And he's abounding in, in this steadfast love, this unwavering, this committed love. The steadfast love really points to the covenantal, the hased aspect of God's love. It's an unbreakable bond that he has made. And the beauty is these characteristics of God that, that he proclaims to himself are not but a moment in time. But rather, this is who God is forever and always. Never changing. Always faithful. And we talk about reasons to praise him. And then in verse 9, he says that God is good to all. It's this idea that his goodness extends through a common grace given to all of man. Whether those have a relationship with him, part of the covenantal community, or those that are apart from him, God still is good. The reality is the vilest of sinners still gets to see the goodness of God. They get to see the beauty of creation, a majestic rainbow breath in their lungs, the satisfaction of a quality meal, the joy of relationship. I mean, as Jesus said on a Sermon on the Mount, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. These are the mercies of the Lord that emulate his goodness. He is good to all he has made. You see, we're here today because we have reaped the benefit of the goodness of God. And we have reaped the benefit of previous generations proclaiming the goodness of God. Telling of his goodness and his greatness. Ultimately telling us the gospel. The beauty is that baton has been passed to us. To carry that from one generation to the next. We need to be talking to the next generation. And, and though this, I believe this is a universal call to all followers of Christ, if you are a parent, I also want you to perk up your ears because you literally have the opportunity to do that every day of your life as you pour that into your children, the next generation. And what's important to note is as David's proclaiming this, it's not just simply a, hey, teach them these things. But this commend language that he uses is actually a praise. 
praise God for the work he has done. Ultimately, David's saying exaltation should be part of our education. It's not enough to simply teach. We must do our best to cultivate a love for truth, an adoration for praise and cherishing of the gospel. Again, the gospel message is not simply something to know. It's something to believe with your very being. Again, remember, it's our theology needs to lead to doxology. As Piper says, God does not drop a new Bible from heaven on every generation. He instead, he instead insists that the older generation will teach the newer generation to read and think and trust and obey and rejoice. It's that God draws near personally. It's true that God draws near personally to every generation of believers, but he does so through biblical truth that they learn from the preceding generations. So the question is, are we telling of God's mighty deeds? Are we telling of his wondrous works? And what are these wondrous deeds, you might be asking? The very gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, God sent his own son to earth. The God-man came and lived among us. He performed miracles. He literally controlled and defied nature. But that is nothing in comparison to his sacrifice. He took our sin, our vileness, and bore the wrath of God on the cross that we may be made right. Jesus himself defeated death, rose from the grave, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's our intercessor. He's our mediator. He's made us a new creation. We're kids of a king. We're citizens of heaven. And that is a story worthy to tell. I mean, how more wondrous can that be? That God took us, somebody that was dead, no heartbeat, lying on the ocean floor, and revived us, gave us breath into our lungs. That's a story worth telling time and time again. That's a story worth praising for the one who did that for us. So do we tell people the gospel? Do we share our own testimony with one another? See, there's no boring testimony. The reality is the drug dealer and the murderer who comes to know Jesus on his deathbed. And someone like me, a four-year-old who asked Jesus into my heart on my bed. Both of those are miraculous stories of God taking somebody and transforming their heart, transforming their soul. We were both dead, but now we are alive. You see, we do not want to individualize our relationship with God. For some reason, I think we're so prone to just kind of live out this mantra, oh, it's me and God. I do my own thing, I go into the forest, I spend time with God, and I come back, and I don't tell anybody about it. This relationship we say is so special that we don't want to invite anybody into it. Yet that's ultimately the opposite of what this psalm is calling us into. The psalm is calling us to proclaim that, to praise God from generation to generation, to talk of his wondrous deeds, how he's transformed our lives and the lives of those around us. So parents, 
Do your children know your testimony? Have you shared the story of God's grace in your own life? Yes, share the gospel every single day, but do they even know how the gospel has impacted your life? If not, start from a young age so that they may see that and then they may tell their friends. As they come to know the Lord, may the gospel be something that is just ever on their lips. And Christian, do you tell your story, do you tell your testimony to one another? To fellow believers as well as non-believers? Besides preparation for a mission trip or something like that, I think a lot of times we, we don't share our stories. We might talk about what we're learning, which is awesome, amazing. But oftentimes we don't even do that. Yet he's saying, tell of the mighty works of the Lord to all who have ears. I mean, we want to see that even happen within our own church. And part of that's going to be through our community groups this year. Um, we're going to have weeks that are content-focused and weeks that are really, like, community-focused. And within those community-focused weeks, we're going to kind of walk through what does it look like to share your story with one another. Because I've even realized being part of this church for six years and sometimes being in community groups with people for three or four of those, that I might not actually know their story. I might know bits and pieces of it, but I don't actually know the depth of how God has transformed their life. And there's so much joy and satisfaction and praiseworthiness that comes from those. And so we want to see that part of just the natural rhythms of our church community. We desire to make the Lord famous in our life, in our city, and in our world. Because our God is great, our God is good, and thirdly, we see our God is glorious. In verses 10 through 12, he says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, and to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your majesty. David transitions from personal praise to generational praise, now to just simply all will praise. He says his works shall praise him. It's really reflecting on verse 9 in God's goodness. His goodness to all that leads to his works praising him. And then he goes more specifically to the saints shall bless him. And we have many reasons to bless him because we have been transformed through the blood of Christ that was spilled for us. What a blessing the gospel is. And if we didn't catch in the generational standpoint, he's just kind of reminding you, hey, tell your children of God's goodness. Tell your children of the reasons to bless the Lord. See, where verses 4 through 7 kind of focus on the redemptive nature of God, these verses, 10 through 13, focus on the glorious rulership of the Lord. He's ultimately saying, praise the Lord for he is king. And his kingdom, his dominion is glorious. And his kingdom is glorious because the king itself is glorious. And God's glory radiates out to all that are in his dominion. He is the light that shines and shines brighter than we can ever fathom. And we are kingdom people. And the call of the kingdom people is to be a talking people. The language he uses, speak of your glory. Tell of your power. Make known to your children the mighty deeds and glorious splendor. He's saying, talk of the Lord. Talk of his kingdom. Talk of his character. Talk of his goodness. And that reason for praise 
that first half of 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. We praise him because his kingdom is without end. Nations will rise and kingdoms will fall, but the Lord and his word will stand secure forever. That's something we can rest in. He is the alpha and the omega. His kingdom has no end. So it's a kingdom we can always talk about and always rejoice in because we know the end. And it's still there, still going on. So in the midst of the chaos of our political scene, in the midst of our state literally burning up, we can find comfort and hope in the unchanging kingdom of God. As kingdom people, we can be confident that our king will return and make things right. He is the king that restores. He is the king that redeems. You see, we praise the Lord because our king is not this vindictive, power-hungry, egotistical tyrant. Rather, our king is great. And our king is good. Our king is glorious. And lastly, we see that our king is the giver. There's so much beauty in this statement because you think typically kings realistically would be takers. They would take your land. They'd take your food. They'd take some of your money. And oftentimes if war would arise, they'd take your men. They'd take your husbands and your boys to fight for them. Yet our king, our God, he's one that gives. And here we see again, David reversed the order. And he gives us all these reasons to praise the Lord, concluding with his final praise. In verses 13, the second half through 16, he says, The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living See, our Lord, he gives help to the weak and oppressed. He restores the fallen and he restores the, the oppressed. This bowing down imagery is one of oppression. Ultimately saying, our God lifts up our heads. When I was growing up, I, I played Little League Baseball. Um, and my dad was really faithful in coming to pretty much any game he could. Which at times became challenging because all four of us kids were all playing sports in the same season. And so Saturdays were just the chaos of running around and, and navigating our, our schedules. Yet my dad was so faithful to show up and support me. I'll never forget the support he gave me. And let me tell you, I needed that support. Um, let's just say I wasn't, as a kid, the best at keeping my emotions in check. And baseball just elevated that. So if I struck out or played poorly in the field, it was very common for me to sulk, to pout, to cry at points, um, or quite often, sadly more often than it should be, to throw my helmet um, in frustration. But oftentimes in the midst of this, I'd hear my dad cry out or yell out, hey, head up, number two, by number. Head up, Davey. I'm here for you. You'll get it next time. And see, that's the good dad that helps their sons lift their heads up. 
They encourage them, and that's what God is doing. It's our king who's looking at his children saying, hey, get your head up. I'm here with you, and I'm for you. I'm present. I mean, what kind of king or leader is mindful of those who are brokenhearted and hurting and feeling oppressed? Our God is. He gives us what we need when we need it. So if you're weak, are you falling? Do you feel like you've already fallen flat on your face? Has your sins overwhelmed you? He's saying, look to God. Look to me, for I am the help. I am the one that will lift your heads. I am the lifter of spirits. And again, this is not some naive optimism. But this is God-centered truth. For the character of God does not change. The reality is our God is truer than our emotions. Our emotions ebb and flow. Yet God is the rock that in the midst of the storm does not waver, does not change. Not only does he give us help, but it even says he gives food to all his creatures. All creation looks to God for their provision. And one commentator states, The Lord opens his hands like a person feeding animals, giving them as much as they desire. The king is generous, not dispersing in small measured amounts, but providing abundantly. Ultimately, David in this section is saying that God does not skimp, but he provides in abundance. He gives and gives and gives. And that second half in 17 to 20, he says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Again, we're seeing 13b and 17 flowing out of each other. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. The Lord is righteous and kind. And that is how he interacts with his people. You see, he gives answers to those who pray, to those who call out to him. And again, this nearness of God speaks of the closeness of a friend. It's not simply being an earshot and I'm yelling out and you can kind of hear me in the distance. But rather, it's this imagery of God being right next to him. As a best friend would be in a trying time. Help is ready and waiting. Call out to him. Call out to him in truth. He's saying call out to God in sincerity, actually believing that God is sovereign. That he's actually able to carry your burdens. And not only is he able, but he's willing for God is gentle and lowly. And he says, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. But you actually have to come. You actually have to go to him to receive that rest. Lay your burdens before him at the foot of the cross. Release it. And he will take it every single time. And he's saying, speak with a sincerity to God. God isn't looking for just the how to pray the right way and making sure I get all the words. And the bigger the word and the more ologies at the end of the word, the more God hears. Rather, he's saying, pray in truthfulness, sincerity, out of fear that leads to utter dependence. And ultimately, the Psalms actually is a great way to show us how to pray to God. Because again, we've seen this summer prayers of praise as we're rejoicing 
for what God's doing and delivering us from enemies. And yet one psalm later, we can also see utter destruction in our minds as we're questioning where God is. And we're seeing both of those prayers. Both of those. God's saying, you can come to me in the highs and the lows. I am here. I am present. Speak to me in truth. Be honest with God. He already knows your thoughts. So why hide them? Go to God with truthfulness, sincerity, and fear because in verse 20, we find out he protects us. He is our protector. Those who love God are preserved. I mean, how amazing is that? God is the only person in our life that will not let you down. I mean, everything you own is going to lack its luster. It's not going to be cool anymore. The TV that you have now in a year will suck. Your phones will be trash. Especially if they're Apple because they got weird systems in play. And every relationship you have, even the closest relationship you have, the relationship of best friend, the relationship with your spouse, at some point they're going to let you down. They're going to fail you. Yet that's not the case with God. You might not understand his actions. You might not understand what he's doing. But I guarantee you, he's not letting you down. Because his word says he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Again, the word of God is truer than our emotions. Or think of the words of Peter in his first letter. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So David, along with Paul and Peter, isn't proclaiming this easy life for the Christian. But he's proclaiming an eternally secure life. He's saying God has you. So even in the midst of difficulties, God's grip doesn't change. And yet we see that how it's comforting for those that are with God. We see those that that are wicked don't share the same assurance. Rather than perseverance, they receive destruction. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, or you're listening in and you don't know Jesus, I humbly call you to consider who God is. Our God that is great, our God that is good, glorious, and ultimately the giver. Because apart from him, no matter what we have in life, will turn to rubbish. But God is the giver that his gift is eternal, and we can cling to that. Again, though we may not understand the ways of the Lord, we might not understand why he took that relationship away from us, why he took that job from us, why he allows us to suffer chronically, to suffer with depression, anxiety, or identity issues, why he's allowed houses of ones that we loved, or maybe even our own houses to burn down. We don't necessarily know the answer. But we can still say and believe that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his work. He works in ways that are often mysterious to us, yet they're always for our good. You see, David emphasizes that even in the midst of tragedy, we can acknowledge that God helps the fallen. He answers prayers. And his actions are not some distant, apathetic deity but rather his actions are one of a relational, present, faithful, loving God. 
I mean, we see again that God is the giver. And he gave us the ultimate gift in his son, Jesus Christ. Who not only did Jesus die for us, we may, be, we may be made right, but he's still working on our behalf. He's the mediator, the intercessor. He took someone like us that's inadequate and made us adequate. And Jesus is our protector. He protects his people. He protects his kingdom. He preserves those who love him. We cannot be destroyed when we are in Christ. And David ends, or he begins, with praise. He says, my mouth will speak, in verse 21, the praises of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Personal praise and all flesh praise. And again, we recognize David has gone through quite the journey. He went from a shepherd boy of a, a nobody to the king of Israel, to the king of God's people. I mean, he was pursued for years with a death warrant on his back by King Saul. He faced giants. He had moments where he led Israel well and moments where he was an utter disgrace to his people and to his Lord. He has moments where he rejoices in dancing before God in his undergarments. And he has moments where he questions God and his very goodness. And yet through it all, Again, it has not made his faith weak and feeble. But it has actually strengthened his faith. For through it all, he knows that the Lord is a Lord who is unchanging and faithful. In our journey and pilgrimage through life, we can look to those who have traveled the well-worn road before us. With insight and, and truth. Yet the beauty is because of the gospel, we don't have to only look backwards. But we can also look forward. We can be confident in this psalm because we have been given a picture of the end. In Revelation 5, we're brought to the throne room of God. Jesus is upon the throne with the scroll. He can, he's the only one that can open it. Verse 13 proclaims, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Our God is worthy of praise forever and ever because our God is great, our God is good, our God is glorious, and he is the giver. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice in the midst of trying times. Uh, you are unchanging. In the midst of a hard, hard season, uh, we can cling to you for hope and comfort. We can go to you in praise. God, we rejoice for psalms like this, that we get to really journey with David through his life and to see his conclusion. Lord, may this be a conclusion that we as Christians also cling to. Rejoicing in your greatness, your goodness, your glory, and the gifts you have blessed us with. In your name, amen.